0: Good morning, Church of the Valley. Uh, My name is Wes, and I'm one of the pastors here along with Chris and Josh, and uh, praise God as of last Sunday, Boyd as well, who's uh, in Florida preparing to move his family here to Utah to join our team. We're really excited about that. So um, we are just blessed to welcome so many guests this morning. Uh, Very cool. So we're glad you're here. We're going to be looking at John 18, those verses that Jess just read to us, Um, and I would encourage you, if you brought along a Bible, or if not, grab one from the seat in front of you, from the seat back, and turn to uh, John chapter 18. My goal this morning is just to help us better grasp the, the complexity and the beauty of what's happening in this passage as Jesus is on trial before Pilate. Uh, and we've got a lot of ground to cover, so I think it'll be helpful if you can actually see it in its context rather than just the little slices of it that we'll put up here uh, on the screen. So um, where are we at in this passage? We're on, it's the Passover week, the previous day. Jesus has uh, celebrated the Passover with his disciples. They've gone out. He's been betrayed by Judas uh, and so, um, we've just left this scene after Jesus has been uh, arrested. Uh, we've just left this scene where illegal, illegally, under the cover of night, the religious leaders have had these two trials, uh, and, and these are absolute mockeries of justice. They're, they're just unjust, unfair, illegal trials. Uh, we should get the sense from the writing that the decision to kill Jesus had already been made by the time he shows up to see Annas, the high priest's father-in-law, who uh, he also gets the title of high priest because he used to be the high priest. And then uh, Pastor John Moon, a guest preacher last week, uh, so elegantly explained that passage to us. It's like a U.S. president. Like once you're a president, you get to keep that title forever. Same thing with Annas. He had been the high priest so, he still gets to be called the high priest, so they take Jesus to Annas, and then to Caiaphas, who's the actual high priest that year. Uh, Caiaphas had already said in John eleven fifty, basically, it'd be better for them to have Jesus killed uh, than for him to stir up the nation so much that Rome thinks there's a real insurrection happening and comes and makes things uh, harder on them. So, that, that's already actually happened a couple of times since Rome had taken charge, uh, that there's some insurrection happens, and Rome comes in and stifles the insurrection, and then things get harder on the Jews. And so they're like, we'd just rather be done with this guy, Jesus, uh, than for him to make our lives worse. And, and the fact was that even under Roman rule, these religious leaders had carved out a pretty decent for them, life for themselves. They had some social prominence, wealth, uh, some influence, and uh, they, they didn't want to lose that. But Jesus is shaking That up by the way that he treats some of their rules and regulations, particularly with his teachings on the Sabbath. And so he threatens their power and importance with his being and teaching, and they're not okay with that. So now finally, they have their chance, and they're like, we're going to put an end to this guy, Jesus. Peter's over here denying Jesus. John is close enough to watch the whole scene and record it for us. It's most likely that he was the other disciple recorded in chapter 18. And so John tells us that they do this fake trial, and some false witnesses, and two high priests are there, and Jesus, throughout all of it, is really the only one who actually acts like a high priest. And they just, they don't really sentence him, um, but they kind of like have these mock trials, and then they wait until morning to take him to Pilate and ask Pilate to officially sentence Jesus to death. And that's where our story picks up today, okay? So we're in John chapter 18, verse 28. It says, it was early morning. So we're going to focus in on the context of what's happening here. The timing is important. It's early morning. Essentially, the court would have opened at sunrise. So the religious leaders got Jesus there in early morning so they could be first in line. Um, They wanted Jesus dead today because the Sabbath was tomorrow, and they were going to be resting that day in observance with the law of Moses. So, today's passage is full of some very skillful and interesting literary tactics. We saw it last week in the way that John would tell us a part of the story of Peter, and then leave us hanging and come tell us part of the story of Jesus and they kind of drop that story and come back to Peter. Clever writing on John's part. Um, this week we're going to see John use irony in a couple of different ways to highlight some truths that he wants uh, uh, to stand out to his readers. So we're going to come to the first theme, and I'll give you. If you're taking notes, and I encourage you to take some notes uh, because we we won't have time to really unpack all of this. So. It'll, create some kind of hooks to hang your thoughts on, if you will. But three themes that we're going to look at today, uh, rituals and irony, a king and a kingdom, and the truth. All right, and we're just going to move just straight through this passage in order, but we'll observe rituals and irony, a king and a kingdom, and the truth. So as we consider this first topic of rituals and irony, uh, we're actually seeing the first little bit of irony in that the religious leaders are in a hurry to murder an innocent man on a Friday so that they can observe their religion on Saturday. Do you see that? It's like people who give themselves to gluttony and drunkenness and debauchery on Mardi Gras because Lent's starting the next day, right? One of the... Yeah, it's too close to home. No, hopefully not. Uh, one of the big problems with religion in general is that rituals so easily become tradition for tradition's sake. Uh, The religious practice is meant to stir up religious affection to help us know and love God better. Even small acts like gathering together on a Sunday like we're doing right now are religious acts, but if we do them out of duty just for their own sake, then we miss the point of the sanctified routine that was designed to help us connect with God and one another in a way that stirs up our hearts for him during the rest of the week. These religious leaders were trying to go ahead and get their sin out of the way on Friday so they could feel good about how well they did at not sinning on Saturday. And verse 33 tells us that they went to the governor's headquarters. In Greek, the term is praetorium. It was this fortress built by Herod the Great, On the upper west side of Jerusalem that was both a comfortable place for the governor Pilate to live as well as a place for him to hold court when he was in town and outside the praetorium there was an area called the pavement where the governor had a judgment seat he would sit on kind of elevated up above the the yard essentially uh, and he would hear matters without having to invite the locals into his palace per se the layout Of the praetorium is going to be significant to the story in two ways. So let's kind of dig into that and consider those. First, the Sanhedrin, that's these Jewish elders who have brought Jesus to Pilate, are standing on the pavement, okay, when they're talking to Pilate, who's in his house. Uh, Verse 28 tells us, they didn't enter the governor's headquarters so that they wouldn't be defiled, but could eat the Passover. We're going to make a couple of key observations there, but I do want to clear up a question that I had when I was reading this passage, and maybe you did too. It says they didn't want to be defiled so that they could eat the Passover. But didn't Jesus and His disciples eat the Passover last night? After He washed the disciples' feet and established the Lord's Supper, Jesus left the meal to betray Jesus. That was the Passover meal they were having If Jesus and His disciples ate the Passover last night, then why are the Sanhedrin concerned about eating the Passover tonight on Friday? That was confusing to me. Um, The simple answer I came to understand is that the Passover was the first day of a week-long festival called the Feast of Unleavened Bread, where uh, they ate unleavened bread every day for a whole week, and it was common because the two overlapped, Uh, it was common for the whole week to be called the Passover. So, uh, even today, the two holidays of Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread are considered a single celebration in Jewish life. And Numbers chapter 9, back in the Old Testament, explains that the Passover lamb would be eaten on Thursday. So, Jesus and his disciples and these Jewish leaders had all observed that celebration last night. The Jewish leaders were in day two... Of the week-long Feast of Unleavened Bread, and they didn't want to become ceremonially unclean because then they'd have to go through a religious like, decontamination process, which would mean essentially that they'd miss the rest of the festival and couldn't perform the required sacrifices and meals during that week. Okay, so the Jewish leaders are standing on the pavement because they don't want to go inside and become defiled. It's important to note that there actually was no Jewish law that prevented them from entering a Gentile's house. Uh, That had been added by the religious leaders. It wasn't that going into a Gentile's house would make them unclean, but that it might make them unclean. Uh, The Jews, since Moses, had built up a bunch of laws called hedge laws to try to protect themselves from breaking the actual law. And over time, those hedge laws had become just as much, if not more important to them than the real thing. Uh, And then, because they had eventually become very ethnocentric and fairly racist, uh, we see the racism illustrated in Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan, for example. But because they didn't want to love those outside the people of God enough to invite them in, they started coming up with all kinds of rules that would essentially, quote-unquote, protect them from having to go into a Gentile's house. Uh, the Jews in that day are racists, and the Romans are murderers. Uh, It was actually fairly common in that day for uh, an unwanted pregnancy to be terminated at home, and they just washed the baby down the drain, which was like a hole in the floor. And so the Jews used the fact that abortion was a really common practice for the Romans as an excuse just not to fellowship with Romans at all, because they might get dead body parts on them, and that would defile them, might become defiled. Uh, Not that it definitively would be the case that they would touch a dead body. Uh, So racism, rampant sex in the culture, and abortion, uh, we've just advanced a lot as a civilization in the last 2,000 years. But I digress. Uh, The more potentially legitimate reason that they didn't want to go into the house. Which was probably the thing on John's mind when he's writing this down, is that Pilate's house almost certainly had leaven in it, uh, leavening agents, yeast, because they would have eaten bread with every meal, and that's how you make bread, with leaven or yeast. And the Jews didn't want to touch any leaven uh, The Jews were celebrating this week-long festival that was marked by the absence of leaven, dating back to the time when Moses had led the children of Israel out of Egypt, and it happened so quickly that they didn't have time to make fluffy bread with leaven in it, and so this Feast of Unleavened Bread celebrated that event. Um, Now, throughout the Bible, leaven or yeast are used to signify or represent sin. Uh, Jesus said, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. And beware the leaven of the Pharisees, just a couple of examples, but there, there are many. The feast of unleavened bread was meant to be a time when the people of Israel went through their homes and removed all the leaven and leavening agents, which actually would have been a challenging thing to do. And that was part of the point. Uh, even if you have to eat gluten-free, I want you to think for a second about how much of a challenge it would be to get all of the leaven and yeast out of your house, all those Cheerios out from under the seats of your car, all the little crumbs in the corners of the cabinets, any little speck of remaining leaven would have made the home ceremonially ceremonially unclean. And the point of this exercise was to remind Israel to take sin seriously so that they would work hard to search all the corners of their hearts to root out sin. And so now we come to the point, and we can circle back to the irony that John is employing to tell this part of the story. These Jewish leaders are so concerned with becoming ceremonially unclean, with potentially becoming defiled on the outside, that they are willing to murder the Son of God remember the great proclamation by John the Baptist in John 1, verse 29. chapter One of the first things we even hear about Jesus in the book of John is, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Do you see the ironic parallel? The Passover lamb that all these guys had eaten last night reminded them of a substitutionary sacrifice. The blood of the lamb had been placed on their door frames in Egypt, and the angel had passed over their house. They had been protected from death because the lamb had died in their place. And now the greater lamb, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, is before them, able to make their hearts and souls clean. And rather than believe in him, they want to kill him. They don't want to get their feet dirty within 11, so they're willing to get their hands dirty by having him killed. John MacArthur said, This is an amazing level of hypocrisy. They don't want to be defiled, and they're about to kill the Son of God. They would have done far more, they would have done far more to defile the Gentile habitation than it would have done to defile them. They were happy to keep the letter of their own invented law while killing the one who came to fulfill the law, the one who wrote it in the first place. The irony is that they missed the forest for the trees. Observing the ceremony was meant to draw their hearts to God. The impossible effort of getting all the leaven out of their house was meant to highlight how impossible it is for us to get all the sin out of our own lives. The very ritual that they were in a hurry to kill Jesus so they could get on with observing was actually meant to show them their need for Him to come and take away their sin. Um, I got a text yesterday afternoon from a friend who's here with us today exploring biblical Christianity, and it was so encouraging. Uh, I woke up thinking about it and just had to share this conversation, a little piece of this conversation with you. Uh, He's been searching and discovering a lot these last couple of months about the God of the Bible, and he texted me, what chapters from John should I read for tomorrow's service? And so I told him about our passage. He said, okay, I'll read over and study the verses. Then I suggested maybe he go look at the same story from the other Gospels, and he's like, okay, I'll check those out as well. And then he listened to the sermon from last week, which I think we can all agree was amazing. And uh, so I, I had to give him a heads up, though you'll see in my text, Uh, To adjust his expectations for the sermon today, because the preacher was going to need a lot of grace. But I wonder how many of us spent any time this weekend studying or meditating on today's passage to prepare our minds for the message, to get our hearts ready to meet with the people of God and submit ourselves to the Word of God. How many of us woke up early? Now, I slept through my alarm this morning, so I'm with you here. But how many of us woke up early enough today to pray for God to move in our hearts in our congregation today, early enough to warm our voices up to sing together, to let our kids eat some food and play for a half an hour at home so they can get their wiggles out enough to sit quietly and respectfully as we open together the holy word of life and implore the creator of the universe to speak to us. Of course, Sunday mornings are a social event. Ecclesia, the Greek word for church, literally means the gathering. But it's not just any old gathering that we can show up fashionably late and unprepared for. We're a community of grace. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ, so please don't hear me trying to make anybody feel guilty this morning if you didn't prepare to meet with God's people. Um... But what I'm trying to do is invite us to more reverently and impactfully approach the throne of God together. Religion be damned. I I just, I want more of Jesus, and I want more of Him for you all too. Um, But I fear that we, like these Jewish leaders who had Jesus on trial, we can become so tied to the rituals in our life, even the ritual of coming to church, that we miss out on the rich, vast, deep, amazing relationship with our Creator that the rituals are meant to draw us into. The Sanhedrin elders are standing on the pavement before Pilate because they didn't want to become ceremonially unclean, but the very thing they are doing proved that their hearts were black with malice. So Pilate comes out to them and asks what their charge against Jesus is. And now we're going to talk about a king and a kingdom. These guys, they don't tell Pilate anything. Verse 30 tells us that they play this rhetorical game and say, we wouldn't have brought him to you if he was innocent, which in fact is exactly what they had done. There were some reasons that Pilate didn't really want to get involved in this in the first place. Not the least of which probably was that he was still waking up. And he actually tried to make it somebody else's problem. The other gospel accounts tell us that Pilate sent Jesus to Herod, who interviewed Jesus and sent him back after saying he found no fault in Jesus. And this was all bad news for Pilate because Pilate couldn't find anything wrong with Jesus either. Uh, He wanted to follow Roman law, and he couldn't just kill Jesus just because this crazy crowd wanted him to he had to have a legitimate reason, but he also knew that if he messed up too much, he could be removed from office. So, a little bit of backstory. In 4 BC, Herod the Great, who built the praetorium, uh, he had died, and his will split up his kingdom between his sons. He wasn't Jewish, but he was a local ruler in the region, and all but one of his sons ruled just fine. They were they were okay, so Rome basically didn't care what they were up to. Uh, It was too small of a deal for Rome to be concerned about it. But one of the sons, the one who inherited Judea and Samaria, which is where our story takes place, uh, this other son was like an awful extortionist mob boss. Archelaus was his name. So the leaders of the people of Israel go to the Romans, and they say, hey, this local guy is terrible, and we want you to step in, kick out Archelaus, the local king, and give us a Roman governor instead. So Rome sends governors and soldiers, and that's where we find ourselves today. These governors, which Pilate is one, could be removed if the people reported them to the emperor, and it seemed like the governor was not fit to lead, and it turns out that Pilate not a great leader, and he knew that, so he's fearful of this thing happening. So it's interesting stuff, uh, but just for the sake of time, I'll I'll spare you the details today. Suffice it to say, though, that on three previous occasions, Pilate had already lost the respect of the Jews in like really spectacular ways. Uh, they had already reported his failings and gotten his policies overturned, and we'll see in the next chapter, John chapter 19, that they're going to threaten Pilate by saying, "If you release Jesus," You're no friend of Caesar's. Basically, we'll tell on you again if you do it. So Pilate kind of has his back up against the wall here. Uh, He doesn't want to deal with this situation. He doesn't think Jesus should die, but the Jewish leaders want to kill Jesus. Now, if Jesus is to die, according to a Roman law that had gone into effect in about 30 AD, so like literally right before this trial, a couple years, uh, the Jews. They couldn't legally execute Jesus without a Roman official presiding over the matter and ordering the execution, and that's what they're asking Pilate to do. And Pilate's like, no, 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 I'm not playing that game. You deal with this guy according to your own laws. Uh, he hasn't done anything to break Roman law, so he's not my problem. Kill him yourself, basically. Now they rightly respond that Roman law didn't allow them to execute Jesus, and that's what they wanted Pilate to do. Now, in Acts seven, so Matthew, Mark, Luke, John Acts, the next book in the New Testament, uh, an angry mob of Jews stones Stephen to death, and they don't seem too bothered about what Rome's going to do about it. Uh, there's no indication, actually, that Rome took any issue with that. Uh, but here, the Sanhedrin tells Pilate, "Nope, we can't kill Jesus. you have to do it." Uh, so why does all that matter so much? In the grand scheme of things, what a detail. If the Jews had killed Jesus according to their laws and ways, they would have taken him out, thrown him down, and thrown stones on him until he died. And they actually had already tried to do that once in his life, but he got away. But the Roman way of executing at the time was to nail the convicted person to a cross and lift them up to humiliate them publicly until they were utterly spent and died. And Jesus had said, in John chapter 12, verses 32 to 33, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And John commentates, he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So if Jesus had been executed by the Jews in the Jewish way, instead of by the Romans on a cross, then we would be wrong today to worship him as our Savior. Jesus foretold the manner of his own death, and if he'd been wrong about it, then he's not the truth. And he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. So he can't bring us to the Father if he isn't the truth, and he's not the truth if he was wrong about the manner of his death, which he foretold would be a death in which he was raised up from the earth. Now, I'm getting a little ahead of myself There's some really important things here in the story that I don't want us to miss before we get to this absolutely massive question that Pilate's going to ask Jesus about truth. The point I want us to see here at this point is that Jesus was going to be killed in exactly the manner that he had predicted. This is his world. You and me, and Pilate for that matter, are just living in it. We're going to look specifically at what Jesus says to Pilate, but before we do, I want you to see the way John paints the scene. John wants us to uh, kind of chuckle a bit at the stark contrast between this humble and fairly silent king, King Jesus, the maker and ruler of heaven and earth, held up against this poor excuse for a ruler in Pilate. We should notice Pilate's frustration, an exacerbation at the whole situation. In fact, we're going to see in the very next chapter, Pilate kind of expressing his frustration with Jesus when he says, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. John illustrates that very point in our passage today. Pilate is supposed to be this big shot Roman ruler, but what is he doing the whole time the trial is happening? It's comedic. He's actually running back and forth between Jesus inside and the Jews outside on the pavement because they won't come inside. It's almost like he's running around waiting tables or something. This guy who thinks he has some power is actually getting treated like an errand boy between some people who just won't come in his house because it's too dirty. And a guy who he actually has imprisoned and and Pilate's the one doing the running around. Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. We get to see in this passage today where true power is and what it looks like. I I hope this part will be a great comfort to us. Uh, The world around us sure seems to be falling apart. And add to that, it's an election year in our country, and by all accounts, it seems like the status quo is gonna win again. But whether the outcome is mostly red or mostly blue, the year is sure to bring with it contention, fears, fear-mongering, much heat, and very little light. Armed with the truth of Jesus' words in our passage, we'll find ourselves defiantly rejecting the cultural status quo of fear and uncertainty, and perhaps even lightheartedly dancing along with Woody Guthrie, who said, Let's have Christ our president. Let us have him for our king. Cast your vote for the carpenter, they call the Nazarene. So let's see about this king and his kingdom in the final verses of our passage. Pilate may not have been a great leader, but he was smart enough to figure out that the only thing he might possibly be able to kill Jesus for was insurrection. So he asks in verse 33, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus is just like, did you come up with that on your own? He's like, do, do you think that or did somebody tell you to say that? And Pilate's like, hey man, I don't care who you are. Your own people gave you over to me, so what did you do to deserve it? And so then Jesus circles back to the original question about being a king because the answer to what have you done to deserve to die is actually absolutely nothing. So Jesus is going to talk about, let's talk about the king thing instead, Pilate, okay? So verse 36, look at this with me. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from this world. Pastor Chris texted me last night as I was working on this part of the sermon, and he pointed out something really significant about Jesus and what Jesus is saying to Pilate here uh, and to all of us. Uh, see, Pilate isn't asking about Jesus' being. He's asking about his doing. Essentially, he's saying, are you trying to be the king of the Jews? Have you set yourself up as king? And the thing that Chris pointed out to me is that Jesus' kingdom is not of this world, not from this world, meaning he didn't become a king. He's not setting himself up as king. He has always been king. He always will be king. His kingdom does not depend on whether people call him a king or in any way relate to him as such, but rather because he is eternally the king He relates to his creation from the eternal reality and vantage point of his kingship. He's not trying to be the king. He can't become a king. He just is the king. And that reality will never, ever change. And we can rest in that reality, trust in that reality, because it is who he is. He is in charge. He is not surprised. He is not powerless to rescue. Even in the darkest moments where all hope fades and all light seems to fail, in this darkest of moments where it appears in the cosmic battle of good and evil, that evil may actually have won, Jesus says, I have my enemy exactly where I want him. Jesus says, for this purpose... I was born. That's exactly what he says in verse 37. Pilate's like, wait, so you are a king? That's going to be a problem if it's true. And Jesus says, you say that I'm a king, which was like a way of saying, you said it right, basically. But, but then to drive his point home, Jesus says in verse 37, look at this with me. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king? Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, what is truth? Remember that Jesus is on trial here. So he's about to call his only witness in his defense, and it's him. When Jesus says he came into the world to bear witness to the truth, he's providing testimony in his case. And he's kind of saying, I'm not the kind of king you're thinking about, Pilate. I'm not a robbing insurrectionist. But because my purpose for being here is to bear witness to the truth, I can't just leave it at that. I have to tell you the truth because I am, in fact, a king, just not the kind you're thinking about. So then Jesus spins this thing and really blows Pilate's mind and says, everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. In a Christmas Day sermon in 1988, Dr. John Piper pulled two implications in one exhortation out of this passage that I think still serve us well today. Uh, We'll have these on the screen. Oh, it's tiny. You can't see it. I'll read it. Uh, Implication number one, there is truth, truth that everyone should believe. Implication number two, Jesus came to testify to the truth. He is the key witness. And the exhortation don't be like Pilate when you hear the truth. Notice that Jesus used the phrase the truth, but Pilate didn't ask, what is the truth, but rather, what is truth? The idea that there is such a thing as the truth was contrary to Pilate's worldview, and it is even more contrary to our postmodern, or I guess postmodern way of thinking. Uh, so, so we have to address that briefly. Um, John Piper said in his message about this passage, remember nearly 40 years ago that Piper said this, and the world has only become more radical in its re- uh, rejection of absolute reality since then, I assure you. But Piper said, Morality today has been virtually defined in terms of relativism. If you don't believe that the truth you see is binding on me, then you're humble and good and moral. But if you do believe that the truth you see is binding on me, then you are arrogant and intolerant and immoral. Virtue and morality today demands relativism. This is the 20th century world, or we might say the 21st century world, To which Jesus says, For this purpose I was born and came into the world to bear witness to the truth. There are two key problems with relativism. And I wish we had time to dive into both, but community group leaders, we men, I'll just say, have fun unwinding your group's epistemologies this week uh, while you close some of the gaps in my reasoning. Um, But the, uh, in the most basic of ways, relativism is wrong because it's unbiblical and it's self-defeating. Uh, it's unbiblical. We, we have accepted that the Bible is divinely inspired by our maker and is our only ultimate and inerrant authority for faith and practice. The Bible is what the Reformers called norma normans non normata. That's Latin for the norm or the standard with no standard over it. Uh, it is the rule that rules, as R.C. Sproul put it. And and relativism is unbiblical. Uh, Besides being unbiblical, relativism is also self-defeating. You have to make a statement of absolute truth in order to even assert that there is no absolute truth that everyone should believe. So, if I stand before you and I make a statement that there is no absolute truth, then by my own admission, my statement cannot be absolutely true, which means that I'm wrong about there being no absolute truth. So, absolute truth is real logical necessity. And yet, we live in an insane and terrifying world that keeps insisting that there is no such thing as absolute truth or absolute morality, because tolerance is just relativism applied to morality. That second implication then, uh, if there is truth, truth that everyone should believe, then the second implication from the text is that Jesus came to testify to that truth He's the key witness to the truth across all time. But Jesus is gone. That was over 2,000 years ago. What do we do now? If it is a moral imperative that we should believe the truth, and Jesus is going to bear witness to the truth, and he's gone, then what do we do? Remember what Jesus said in John chapter 8, verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. If you're trying to know the truth and to be set free by it, then take your Bible and get quiet with God in his word. Look at John's account. Look at the other three witnesses of Jesus' teachings too, Matthew, Mark, and Luke the first three books in the New Testament. Let Jesus testify through them to you. Listen, relativism says that we have to define our reality through our experience and point of view. Uh, It may be true that we tend to understand our reality through the lens of our point of view, but that doesn't mean that our reality is created by our point of view. I had a mentor many years ago who used to say, my experience neither proves nor disproves the word of God. And what he meant was that God's word can speak for itself. He doesn't need me to say that I think it's true in order for it to be true. Rather than trying to make God's word fit my reality, if Jesus is the key witness to what is true, I should try to fit my understanding of reality to what he says. Let me read that again. Rather than trying to make God's word fit my reality, my way of thinking, if Jesus is the key witness to what is true, I should try to fit my understanding of reality to what he says. In that same sermon from Christmas 1988, John Piper said, if you will go to the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, as they stand in the Bible, and listen earnestly and carefully and openly, with a willingness to do the truth if you see it, then the witness of the writers and the testimony of Jesus will prove to you their credibility. Jesus was born and came into the world to bear witness to the truth. The witness of his work and his words is preserved in the Gospels. Read them afresh, In the coming year, with a willing heart, and you will know the truth that he came to bring. Now, if we come back to our passage for uh, a final thought in closing, and the band and uh, prayer team, you can make your way to the stage. Uh, Pilate responds to Jesus. Jesus essentially offers that he can know the truth. And Pilate responds with a cynical and hopeless retort. What is truth? Truth may be relative or maybe it's not, but I just don't know. That's kind of the gist there. And maybe that's where you are today. I, I just don't know. Or, or maybe you think uh, we can't know truth. Not just that you don't know it, but it's impossible. Truth may be real or it may not be real, but if it is, it's unknowable or unfindable. Or at least, uh, I don't think I could find it if it's real. If that's you, you must feel just lost in this relativistic world around us. All I can say to that point is that I hope and I pray that we can all see what's at stake, that it really is an eternally weighty matter of life and death. Jesus uh, didn't come to keep the truth hidden, but to bear witness to the truth of God, the unchangeable truth of who He is, what He's done, and what He will do, the truth that He created us to know Him and enjoy Him. The truth that even though we rejected him, even though our sins were so many that we couldn't clean them all up, just like the leaven in the house during the Feast of Unleavened Bread, it was just impossible for us to clean up our own lives. But instead, Jesus came to us. We couldn't get to him, so he came to us to stand in our place before a judge who wouldn't find any fault in him. That's what the last verse in our passage says today. Pilate says, "'I find no guilt in Jesus.'" And yet, Jesus will see over the next month and a half as we continue to look at the final hours of Jesus' life, Jesus will be found innocent, and yet, He would go on to die anyway. Not dying for His own sins, because He had none, but for ours, so that we could be united with God. Jesus said He came to bear witness to the truth. Our call to action this morning is simple. Take up the Bible and read the testimony of Jesus, and then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. If you need to be set free by the truth, don't wait another day. Come talk to me or Chris. We'll be at the back of the room. or Come talk to our prayer team here in the front of the room as we sing. We'd love to lead you to faith in Jesus. And for so many here who already have believed in Jesus, that he really is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He said to the Jews who had believed in him in John 8, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So let's all commit ourselves to abide in Jesus's word, to seek him, and to submit to him. Let me pray, and then we'll sing together as we respond. Father, thank You for Your Word. Your Word is truth without any mixture of error in it. Thank You for preserving the good news, the story about Jesus, His testimony. Lord, You sent Christ to die in our place, and that is true. Our sin had separated us from God, and that is true. But the good news is that while we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. That in this great exchange, you made Him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God that was in Him, that you could be pleased with us because of the work that He had done on our behalf. Lord, we confess and admit that we uh, are a messed up people and we live among a messed up culture that doesn't know up from down. Lord, help us to hang on tightly to the word of truth, that we could continue to sing as we did earlier, on Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. Lord, I pray that you would move in hearts this morning, even today, by the power of your truth and your spirit to set hearts free. Lord, you said that we, if we abide in your words, we would know the truth and the truth would set us free. So would you um, set free captives even this morning as we sing and praise you for the great work that you have done to redeem a people from Yourself, to to deliver us from darkness to Your glorious light. God, You are good. We confess we need You. Um, Give us strength to respond and courage this morning as we sing. In Jesus' name.